Welcome to the Richie Flow Nutrition Podcast. In this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with John Metrophonis. John is a world-leading researcher on the effects of photobiomodulation on brain activity. His work is centered around seeking treatments and preventative measures for neurodegenerative diseases, namely Parkinson's disease. John is now based in France, where he works as a researcher at the Biomedical Research Center Clinitech in Grenoble, France. In his book, Run in the Light, John outlines the most current understanding of the pathologies involved in Parkinson's disease and how both exercise and photobiomodulation can be used as inexpensive, simple, and essentially no-risk modalities to prevent and delay the progression of the disease. John's research is on the cutting edge. He is inquisitive and extremely open-minded in his pursuits. Our conversation was stimulating and I learned a lot from it. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Before we start today, I'd like to thank Blue Blocks for sponsoring the podcast. Artificial light is highly concentrated in the blue spectrum. These narrow frequencies of light are highly unnatural to the skin and eyes, and as a result, it can dramatically affect sleep quality. Blue Blocks makes the best glasses and light globes that I've used. Blue Blocks glasses filter the disruptive frequencies from getting into my eyes at night and negatively affecting melatonin secretion. By using the code RICHIFLOW, that's R-I-C-C-I-F-L-O-W, you can get 15% off all circadian-friendly glasses, light globes, sleep masks, and even the red light devices that John and I discuss in this episode. To find them online, search B-L-U-B-L-O-X. With all that being said, I hope you enjoy the conversation. Uh, hey, John, thanks for coming on to speak with me today. I've been really looking forward to this. Um, I guess I just wanted to get a background on how you got started in um, researching Parkinson's disease and photobiomodulation. Um, okay. Uh, um, my, my training was, uh, my, my great love was um, trying to figure out how the brain works. Um, and I know that's a big big thing um but the the goal was was really just to pick a spot in the brain and and um and try and figure out how that little little spot um works and how it's connected how it's put together um and maybe by figuring out that little spot maybe that can give us clues as to what other bits do um and so I started off in the retina um, for my PhD um, and then moved um, into central areas like the thalamus um, uh, for, for my postdoc. Uh, and, uh, again, it was just picking a little spot and saying, how does that little bit of the thalamus work so that can give us a better idea of how the cortex works, which is the highest seat of neuronal activity. Um, so I was doing that and um, when I got my first job um, and ran, was running a lab, um, that's what I was doing. And in those days it was still, in the 90s, it was still, you could still attract a reasonable amount of funding from government agencies on intellectual issues, scientific issues of, of how things work. Um, and that was something that I loved. I, I, rather than trying to figure out how things don't work or what happens when they go wrong, like the medicos do, my love was as a scientist was, well, let's figure out how this works. Um, and like I said, in the 90s, you could still attract funding from the NHMRC on, on, on how things worked. And, and I received funding on, on my little bit of the thalamus, my little bit of the brain, um, on, you know, what, what's the circuitry here and let's, what can that tell us about other bigger things? Um, and... Uh, that was going well, but but then at the turn of the century, things started to change with regard to funding. Um, now you had to have a disease. You had to have um, some clinical relevance 
for what you did. Um, as a consequence, um, funding for basic scientific issues um, dried up. I mean, nobody nobody would fund you if you wanted to, to to look at little bits of circuitry and the things that I loved. Um, so um, I knew I had to find a disease. Um, and even though it took me away from my first love, um, and as it happened, that little bit of the brain that I was working on was called zona inserta, which is just underneath the thalamus and just underneath the subthalamic nucleus. Um, some surgeons, neurosurgeons, by mistake, had uh, stimulated this little bit of the zona, the, the zona inserta um, and found that many of their patients had relief from the signs of Parkinson's disease. Um, so that's so I thought, oh, okay, well, there's there's my disease because I know a lot about that little bit of the brain. Um, I can, you know, um, fall into Parkinson's disease um, relatively effortlessly. And at that time, where it was this transition of thinking about clinical issues, um, I had I had the opportunity opportunity to do a, a sabbatical um, and I wrote to um, uh, someone who was the father, known as the, the father of the surgical treatment for Parkinson's disease and his name was uh, Alim Louis Benabit uh, here in Grenoble. Um, and I, I wrote to him and I said, you know, um, um, would you entertain the, the possibility of me doing a sabbatical with you? And this is what I'm interested in. And I was interested in um, uh, the, the effects of after stimulation of zona inserta in, in Parkinson's disease. And he was wonderful. He was very gracious. And he, so I went, I came here um, 20 years ago uh, in Grenoble and um, I started sabbatical with him. And it sort of like led on from that because at that time he was, um, he had a group of, uh, I, my French was appalling. It, it still is appalling, <laughs> um, but but it was particularly appalling in, in those days. Um, and Grenoble was, was a place in those days which it was a, a provincial town. It had a wonderful university, a very well-established university, but the, the, the locals of Grenoble didn't really much realise there was a, a life outside Grenoble, let alone France. Um, so not many people spoke English. Um, so trying to, to interact with people who spoke English, um, who didn't speak English, was very, very difficult. Um, and like I said, my French was appalling. So um, he had a group of English-speaking um, uh, people. There were two neurosurgeons, one from America, one from um, the UK, and they were working on um, neuroprotection. They were working on <clears throat> glutamate excitotoxicity. <clears throat> that if you stimulate the the subthalamic nucleus, which is full of glutamatergic excitatory cells, if you stimulate that, you reduce its activity. Um, and you get relief from the signs of Parkinson's disease, but you also reduce the amount of glutamatergic output of the nucleus. And if you get too much glutamate, too much excitation, it will kill a cell that it's being synapsed on. So the thinking was if we reduce the glutamate, then we can reduce the toxicity of, of, of the dopaminergic cells. Uh, the cells that die in Parkinson's disease. Um, so that's so that's what we did. We 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 did a whole study on on the neuroprotective effects of, of um, deep brain stimulation uh, of the subthalamic nucleus, and it was very very fruitful. We published um, a nice string of papers on that uh, on that theme, um, and uh, I came back to Sydney and. Um, that's where I started focusing my, my efforts on. It was neuroprotection and, and, and looking at ways in which we, we can save the, 
the dopaminergic cells uh, that die. Um, and the clinical need for that was um, intense because all treatments for any neurodegenerative disease, whether it be Alzheimer's or Parkinson, are all symptomatic. They all treat the signs or the symptoms of the disease, but they don't stop the disease progressing. So um, neuroprotection was was a hot topic, so to speak. Um, so I, I I ventured down that way and. Um, my attempts of getting funding were were more successful um, because of that theme. Um, and then um, some five years later, uh, sorry, Cameron, is this is this what? No, is, no this, what, is, this is great. I've, um, I'm really enjoying hearing about you know how you how you got to where you are. I think it's important to to know that. Okay, well, um, so we were. So we were dabbling in that, and like I said, the deep brain stimulation um, series, uh, we got a, a lot of papers out of that. I think we might have got 10, 15 papers out, out of that um, line of work. Um, was this with infrared light? No, 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 no. This was no. just straight deep brain stimulation of the subthalamic nucleus to reduce the glutamate toxicity. Yep. Yep. So that, that – Went well, like I said, and, and my funding opportunities got a little better um, because of that line of work. Um, and then um, around about 2008, maybe yeah, 2008, I was having coffee with um, a colleague in, at Sydney, um, and he he was interested in in the retina. He was interested in um, protecting photoreceptors from degenerating. So the similar themes, um, but different system. And we were having coffee and um, he was telling me that he'd come across this new um, method of, of saving photoreceptors. And I said, oh, what? And he said, um, red, red light. And at first I thought... No, come on! You you've got to be joking. How could how could um, light impact on the survival and function of of, of a neuron? Um, so that was completely alien that that line of thought. And he said, "No, look, it, it's effective if um, if if you put bright light on on neuron on on, on the photoreceptors, you'll kill them." too much bright light, but this light at a specific wavelength will actually help them. And I said, how does it work? And he said, the mitochondria are the, are the, uh, are the key targets in that, that it, it increases their activity. They make more ATP energy. The cell is healthier. Um, it kicks off the expression of, of um, various genes, protective genes, stimulatory genes, good genes. Um, and that cell is, is more likely to defend itself when it's under insult, whether it be genetic or toxic. And I sort of sat there for a bit and I went, well, that's, that's interesting um, because Parkinson's disease is, is thought to be principally a disease of mitochondrial dysfunction. The dysfunction of the cell uh, begins with the mitochondria. That you know you've got subabnormality in the the mitochondria, the engine room of the cell, and that just with that disruption, then the cell goes haywire and eventually dies. Um, I said, okay. So we sort of like nodded. And I said, look, um, okay. And I went back to my room, and um, I had a PhD student at the time, and she was. She had, she'd largely finished her her thesis. She had one more chapter to do, um, so she needed experiments for one more chapter. And she had, she had some mice. Um, that what we do with the mice is that we would induce Parkinsonism in the mice. So we would inject them with a toxin um, that would rather specifically destroy the dopaminergic cells. Um, and induce Parkinsonian signs and Parkinsonian pathology. Um, 
So at a cellular level, it's, it was a wonderful, wonderful model. Um, and she she'd done some studies on 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 these mice, this type, this model, and she had some of those mice. And my colleague had given me the the, the light device, the the red light device. So I said to her, look, you've got some mice. It was three or four. Um, put this light on their head and see what see what happens. Uh, and um, she did. Um, so we figured out a way how, how to hold the mice and put the device on top of its head um, and, um, and and uh, what she found was that those mice that had the, the light applied to the head had more surviving dopaminergic cells than the ones that didn't. And that's how it kicked off. And then um, uh, I thought, okay, as unbelievable as, 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 as this is to <laughs> anyone studying the field, um, let's do, let's do a, a decent series. So we, you know, um, we did it on 10 mice. And what was the effect? Most of them had more cells than those that did, didn't have the light. And at that point, I, um, I thought, okay, um, I contacted my old friend, Alim Luz Benabid, and I said to him, um, he's known as, uh, his, his colleagues call him Ben. Um, so I said, Ben, um, uh, you're not going to believe this, but this infrared light, red light, seems to be neuroprotective. And at that time, he was just, he, he was retiring from his uh, position as chief neurosurgeon at, at the hospital. He was leaving the INSERM, um, which is the re, uh, Neuroscience um, Research Institute, and he was coming here to establish Clinitech, which is what we have now. Um, so he was looking for um, uh, something to build a, a, a device for uh, clinical use. And he said to me, John, we have to get make a device that gets for humans, for human use, we have to make a device that gets that light inside the cranium and close to the disease. Because if you apply the light um, in the human from outside, it's probably not going to reach the substantial over where the dopaminergic cells are. Um, it will in a mouse. Um, because you know, we're only talking about that di distance in the mouth. But in a human, you you have to get the light inside the brain. Um, so the development of the intracranial device was was on the agenda, and that that's what we did. And um, we we got to a stage where with every animal model, there's no perfect animal model for any disease. So the more animal models you use as a proof of concept, then the better. Um, so we had a stage a couple of years ago where we, we had tried it on every animal model, whether it be toxic or genetic, um, every different type of animal, whether it be fly up to non-human primate monkey, it was without exception, it was neuroprotective and there was beneficial effects. Um, and that's both Parkinson and Alzheimer's. Um, and uh, earlier, late last year, um, the first patient was implanted um, with the intracranial device, um, and she's going to be tracked for, I think, four or five years, um, and there'll be um, functional scans, uh, PET scans, um, along that journey to see that whether the light is inducing more dopamine um, production. So we had biological measures of, of what this, um, what the effect is. But she has light as we speak um, being applied to her substantia nigra, the dopaminergic cells with an intracranial device. And um, early reports indicate, like I said, it's only been a few months um, that she's, um, she's doing well. Uh, she's moving a little better, but that's anecdotal. Um, uh, but 
like, like I said, we're looking at the functional scans um, a little bit later. So that's that's how I, I I hope I haven't bored you too much. No, but, no, that's um, amazing. I didn't realize you'd uh, done uh, work work with the implants just yet. So that'll be um, awesome to see if that continues to work. Um, I you can feel free to correct me wherever I'm. I've said something that's uh, maybe not entirely correct, but um, Parkinson's seems to be characterized by the accumulation of these. Uh, Louis bodies um, yep. in the substantia nigra. Um, how do these um, protein accumulations, these alpha synuclein, um, uh, relate to the mitochondria, mitochondrial dysfunction, and the red light therapy? Um, ah. <laughs> I mean, a lot. Of, I mean, a lot of what you ask is is, oh, yeah, you know. But what we do know is is that um, um, if you alpha synuclein is 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 essential for normal function, whatever it does, we're not entirely sure. But what it's there by the it's it's there in the mitochondria and it's it works normally. But something happens, and um, it starts to um, propagate. It starts to – there's too much of it, you know. Um, and when you get too much of something, uh, invariably it's not good for the system. So you get too much of this alpha-synuclein in the cell, and that becomes toxic. Um, and what's worse – it's okay if it's one or two of these cells. Well, what's worse is that it seems to propagate. Um so you might get one dysfunctional cell with too much alpha-synuclein, but that spreads. It's a bit like the, the Wuhan virus. Um, you know, you've got this spread across, and it's considered now a prion disease, um, where you've got this abnormal spread of the toxicity across, across the brain, like Alzheimer's is, is also, again, uh, considered thought to be a prion disease. And the dysfunctional thing there is is tau and um, and and beta amyloid, but with 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 Parkinson, alpha synuclein is the dreaded, the most mischievous protein. Um, but <clears throat> so yeah, it's it, it's thought to be there normally, um, normal function, but something happens and there's too much of it and it causes all this dysfunction. Um, with red light. It makes the mitochondria healthier, function better, um, and we know that from alpha synuclein models of the disease, it reduces the alpha synuclein, um, probably because it makes the mitochondria healthy and functional, um, and it's effective in in the alpha synuclein models. Um, that's about that's about all I can I, I can say about it, um, but it is it is effective. I um I recently spoke to Gerald Pollack, who I know you um you know his work, um and do you think there's a chance that this interfacial nano water or structured water is involved in um, because we know these water molecules are surrounding each of these proteins in large numbers, do you think that it's possibly a, a a damaged water structure in the brain that's causing these proteins to become accumulated and the red light because it interacts with the uh, water structure is actually salvaging that and allowing the proteins to um, sort of disassociate and, and stop accumulating. Do you think there's something in uh, that idea about water being involved? Yeah, it's a beautiful idea. It's a beautiful idea, um, and I loved it from the minute I heard it. Because um, um, in the old days, uh, well, not the old days, but it was you know when when you, as I started reading it or getting into the light, how it's working. Cytochrome oxidase C was the was the was the one everyone talked about. Um, but then you know the, the last few years, there's been holes in the story, just like with anything. Um, and you know, people have started to realise that that cytochrome oxidase C is not is not the main player. 
Um, and then you've got that wonderful study from um, Summer, I think it's Summer, the, 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 his story out of Germany that he considered the, uh, the water in the mitochondria as, as, a, as, a, key, as a key issue, that it, it is the main receptor. It's the one that absorbs it. Um, and therefore, the, 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 the enzyme that makes ATP works better lubricates the, the the machine and and uh, you've got more energy um and pollock's lovely idea of of you know the the that you look at the fundamentals of life and it's water and what light i mean why wouldn't they interact and um and that that relationship is the basis of what's happening here and when you think of it like that um my early sort of misgivings and the misgivings of so many scientists and particularly neurologists, clinicians, um, of, of doubt, um, when you think of it, take a step back and, and, and think out of the box and think about those fundamental interactions of life, and why, why wouldn't it be like that? Um, I'd... But, yeah, that I, I hadn't thought of it as, as, well, there's a dysfunction in... The composition of the water. That that actually is it. Is that what Pollock said? No, no. This I, I did. I had to do some research on ALS a couple of years ago, and I found out that you know it was likely to be a prion disorder, and mm. I found out that everything that seemed to be associated with it was also proven to disrupt and break the structure of the water you know, heavy metals, uh, pesticides, uh, electromagnetic frequencies, uh, they were all shown to break the structure of water. And I thought maybe, you know, we, we know about the heavy metals in the brain. Maybe these heavy metals are breaking the water and allowing these proteins to misfold and, and accumulate. And maybe that's where we should be looking is to red light um, other modalities to improve the structure of water in the brain. Um, then that was just that was just what I what I thought when I was uh, looking into it, and that's why I was so interested in your work because you're using infrared light um, in precisely the way that I thought it would be working. Right. No, that's mm. an interesting that's an interesting approach. I'd, I'd never really sort of thought of it. Well, there could be just uh, um, the 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 core of it could be a, a problem with the composition of the water. Mm, and that the, mm. the light works to to rectifying that. Mm. I, I know I know you're you're probably going to say it's not well defined or even understood at all. But do you have any working theories on what might be causing these, um, like apart from, um, you know, things like heavy metals? Do you know why it's why these things are happening in such a specific part of the brain? Uh, the dopaminergic cells. Yeah, yeah, in the substantia nigra. Um, well, they are. They're highly. They're very sensitive. They're they're highly functional. Um, <clears throat> they use a lot of energy. Um, so it's a bit like the hippocampus. Um, I mean, if if there's something, if there's something wrong. If the neuron doesn't have its its perfect environment, it will just spit the dummy and die, or dysfunction. Um, that's why, in cases of hypoxia, um, of um, you know the, the hippocampal neurons were the first ones to go. Um, you know, drop blood supply, and and that's it. Hippocampus first to go. Well, the dopaminergic neurons are, are again. Um, similar in that respect that they're, they're, if neurons are the most sensitive cells in the body, then the dopamine ones are right at the top of sensitivity. They're quite new age and, and what have you. Um, <clears throat> so there, there is a line of thought that the, that the disease spreads from the gut. Um, it, it, there's something wrong with the microbiome. Um, and there's something, the alpha-synuclein dysfunction actually starts, the propagation starts, goes up the vagus nerve and then into the brainstem. And once it gets into the brainstem, 
who's the most sensitive group of cells in the brainstem? Right. So mm-hmm. um, even though even though you might not get the clinical effects um, immediately, although you know some of the prodromal effects of Parkinson's disease, you know, can be autonomic. You know, the, the patients will have, you know, um, autonomic dysfunction as a as an early sign. Um, and then, you know, diagnosis is with the motor signs. Um, but even then, it may take it may take 10, 15 years before they're expressed clinically. Um, so, yeah, if it comes up through the vagus nerve and then it starts to spread into the brainstem, We've got we've got those very sensitive things in 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 the midbrain, and they're gonna they're gonna get upset, and they'll be among the first to to go. You know. Yeah, um, yeah, that that makes sense. Um, I I was wondering what what specific frequencies are you using in these devices, and and I know you're using them both on the brain and um, on other parts of the body as well to create these mitokine signals as well. Um, what what kind of frequencies are you using? Um, well, the, the frequency issue is a, a new thing. Um, and, yeah, I've sort of like um, um, – and th- there is some quite a bit of interest. Uh, you know, you've got these, these helmets here. Mm-hmm. So this is this is the coronet um, by Ron Brown and and Catherine Hamilton. Catherine, in particular, um, I've worked closely with over the years with, on on patients. Um, uh, see, th- this is set at 40 hertz. Um, the first of these helmets, not necessarily the coronet, but the V light um, by uh, Lou Lim in in Canada. Um, that that were 10 hertz. But it seems 40 hertz is this magical figure um, that is so beneficial to to brain function. Um, it seems to be very good to clearing a lot of the Alzheimer's pathology. Um, and uh, 40 hertz with this seems to be all the more effective than other frequencies. And it doesn't. It's not just light. It's it's any modality. You start sort of um, using 40 hertz with audition, uh, tactile stimulation. Um, it seems to be more effective than other frequencies. I, I, I'm not sure why. It's like deep brain stimulation. I mean, anything over 100 hertz um, has a completely different effect to something at low frequency, like 20, whereas, you know, low frequency will stimulate a neuron. Whereas, you know, you go high and it has the opposite effect. It'll inhibit. And we still don't know how, exactly how it works. I mean, people have been um, trying to figure out how deep brain stimulation at high frequency works, even though it's universally accepted as as the surgical treatment. Um, we've got more of an idea of how photobiomodulation works than we do <laughs> deep brain stimulation. Mm-hmm. But first... Getting back to your question, 40 hertz seems to be this magical figure, and, and I, I don't think anybody really knows why. Mm. And what's what's that in nanometers? Like, is that um, past the 660 nanometers, or what do you for, mean for um, the infrared? Uh, what like what frequency is it um, projecting into the skull? What frequency of light? Um, it could be anything. Yeah, I I think it uh, it could be like anything within the the red to infra, near infrared range. Um, that's that's the one that I know it's effective at eight ten, right? And and certainly six six seventy. Okay. Um, but I'm not sure for others. Okay. I'm not sure for others. Um, I was wondering your your book's called Run in the Light. Um, I was wondering why you missed a golden opportunity to call it run in the sun um, because the sun is composed of all of these frequencies. So I was wondering, is there a potentially a benefit of using sunlight because it's got all of them in, I guess, a natural distribution of, um, of frequencies? Uh, the problem with the sunlight, it's got, it's got the bad ones too. Mm-hmm. 
Have you, have you considered um, trying uh, some tests with, um, I guess, full spectrum sun to see if you get effects from the the broad range? Um, we environmentally, um, my colleague in 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 London, um, Glenn Jeffrey, mm -hmm. um, he's he's looked at environmental levels of, of red light working on flies mm -hmm. um, and uh, and blue light and uh, blue light mitochondria do not like blue light they'll just pack up and and stop function and it's very very effective with mitochondrial function um, it's in fact, you know, mitochondria are more likely to respond. I think that they're far more receptive to blue light and being, you know, dysfunctional than they are to, to infrared and red. Um, but no, we, we haven't at this point in time, we haven't used uh, sunlight or across the board. Uh, people have used a bright light and found toxic effects. Um, um, there was a group in Italy that did, did this nice study where they put bright light on, on animals and, and found that the dopaminergic cells were not um, but had degenerate. There was more degeneration among those. There's a theory that that you know too much light uh, actually induces Parkinson's disease, particularly um, um, artificial light. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the thing with sunlight is is um, that because it's got the, the the wavelengths which are not so good, um, it it could not it's not necessarily good in large doses, mm -hmm. particularly at, at times of the day. Yeah. Um, you know there are yep. times when we yep. do need blue light and we do need ultraviolet light. I mean particularly with vitamin D, um, but um, too much of it's not. Not a good thing. Mm -hmm. But too much of the red, well, it's nowhere near as toxic as, as, as the blue. In fact, there's, hard, there's yeah. hardly any evidence of toxicity of red to infrared. I did want to ask that. Is there a chance that you could overdo it um, with, you know, uh, near-infrared um, light devices? Is there a way that you yeah. could just, yeah? It's like a, a bell curve. It's, it's too little is not. Nothing but too much is nothing also. It won't necessarily be toxic, um, but its beneficial effects will subside. Um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, there seems to be – it's almost like um, – I remember Glenn uh, telling me once, it was a bit, uh, we were talking and he said it's like a switch. It's like you, you switch it on and – you get the effect, but thereafter, there's no point because right. it's on. Right. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you also um, point out in the book that these chlorophyll metabolites, when uh, consumed, yes. interact with infrared light as well to help produce energy, which is amazing. I was just wondering if you had implemented that into the red light therapy to produce even more effects. Like, are you getting people well, diet, to... Diet. Diet seems to be doing something. Um, it's something which um, I'm hoping to to look a little bit more uh, while I'm here um, and and kick off some projects involving diet, particularly vitamin D. Um, and um, diet seems to be doing something. And and um, you know whether you've got a protein rich, carbohydrate rich, or uh, um, vegetable rich diet um, you know how you you know, depending on that is the effect that might reflect the effectiveness of, of light um, and you know under normal laboratory conditions where you've got everything measured and nice and neat um, light tends to be a lot more you know systematic um, in humans, it can be a bit more variable, just like with anything, really. But um, so that could be reflect, reflective of the diet. Um, 
so that's something yeah I'm looking to to get more involved in with with Glenn, um, and uh, but the thing that we were just talking about this not so long ago that that study with the, the chlorophyll metabolites, uh, no one seems to have kicked on with it. I mean that study is like I don't know eight years old. Um, never heard anything from it. And when uh, yeah. you know when that that happens that no one follows up on it you think oh what 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 is going on um but i'm hoping i'm hoping though that that study can be replicated because it's a it's a lovely idea um i don't know whether you heard of thomas huxley came up with a wonderful wonderful quote of the tragedy of science is or one of the tragedies of science um I'm paraphrasing here. Um, mm -hmm. That one of the tragedies of science is that a beautiful idea can be ruined by an ugly fact. <laughs> so you you know, um, yeah, yeah. It, it's a gorgeous idea, but but um, I think people would take it more seriously if there's independent verification of it. Mm -hmm. But um, I'm hoping to to look a little bit more into diet. Yeah. Well. And, Continuing with that um, line of thought, uh, have you discovered any other protective molecules, dietary molecules? Uh, you mentioned Q10 uh, in the book. I was wondering oh, if yeah. there are any other ones that uh, might be protective as far as um, pathologies in the brain are concerned. Oh, look, in, in an animal model, mm. it's thousands of them. Yeah. You, you can't get enough of it. You know, you, you've got people saying, oh, black seeds, you know, the stuff that goes on the Turkish PD. Mm -hmm. um, that's neuroprotective. Um, you know, I don't know, any, anything. You pick up anything. Um, but, you know, clinically, they unfortunately, none of them has, has translated to anything um, effective. And um, I think there's a, there's a number of reasons for it, but... The bottom line is is that um, we don't know what the cause is, and I think if we know what the causes are, um, then we'd have a better idea of how to treat it. But at the moment, we don't know what really causes it. That's why it's called idiopathic. It's called idiopathic for a reason that we just don't know. And um, um, if we knew, then we'd have a better idea. Um, mm -hmm. But the thing with the light, um, particularly with the helmets, um, you know, talking to patients and, and actually seeing the, the face of the disease um, and how they respond. I, I remember Max Burr, who is a retired politician, he was very vocal on the benefits of photobiomodulation uh, using Catherine's, Catherine Hamilton's helmet. Um, he's just from Tasmania, and um, he said to me, you know, you getting funding for this, John? I said, oh, you know, it's difficult. I said, I'm oh, Michael J. Fox. They're not. They funded us for a little bit, but unless you're working on Alpha Synuclein, then they won't necessarily fund you. Um, and he just looked at me and he goes, I don't give a shit about Michael J. Fox and what he's doing for the future. I just want to feel better now, and this makes me feel better now. Um, and that's all I care about. So, you know, I mean, it's something that's working for, for today for those patients, you know, um, and it's not something that's happening in, in, in going to happen in the future. Um, so if it makes people feel better, um, then – and so many clinicians will tell me this um, – um, they say, well, look, if a patient feels better, that's what's important. Yeah. Um, I remember hearing Michael Hamblin say something about hair being a, a good way to stop uh, infrared light getting through. I was just wondering, can you use these helmets uh, if, if you've got, you know, thick hair or... Unlike me. <laughs> I didn't want to say anything, but... Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Would it be beneficial to shave your head and, and expose it to, you know, all these infrared rays? Would it get through? Would it penetrate deeper? 
Um, look, it doesn't, you know, the, the, the beneficial effects of, of, of those helmets is not, is not because it's getting to deep areas of the brain. It's absolutely not. If, if, it, if it gets to the cortex, so it could be working in two ways. It could, it could be working um, to get to the cerebral cortex, which is only, I guess it's, it's that much beyond your skull. It's not, we're talking 10, 15 millimetres. Mm-hmm. Um, and light has been measured at 20 to 30 so I've got no doubt that that light from that helmet will at least get to the cortex. And it, again, um, from things that uh, a number of people have been working on, um, even um, um, people that I've worked with, um, there's no doubt in my mind that it stimulates cortical activity. It can stimulate the function of a normal cell and a, and and a dysfunctional. It'll just make it work better. Um, so it doesn't have to be un, under pathology. It could just be a normal cell. It'll stimulate it. Um, so I've got no doubt it'll get to the cortex. So part of the effects, the benefits that those helmets give could be symptomatic. It's, it's just stimulating, you know, prefrontal areas, um, motor areas, um, stimulating it and making it work, making you move better. Um, making you feel better, you know, cognitively and, or, you know, you know, memory might be, might be improved. Um, and it could be neuroprotective. It just has to get to the skin. And there's plenty of blood vessels up here. There's plenty of lymphatics. Um, so that light might be stimulating um, things in the circulation, which could be of benefit like you know the mitokines that you 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 mentioned, or it could be stimulating something else that we've got no idea about. Um, there's the the recent discovery of, of free floating mitochondria in the blood. I mean, God, you know, <laughs> who would have thought that those mitochondria would be just floating around in the bloodstream? I mean, maybe maybe the light is stimulating them, and they get to a point where they get to a, a cell that is is uh, under p- pathological stress um, and those free floating mitochondria actually help you know there's lovely images of, I, I, I don't know the study but of, of microglia actually feeding mitochondria into cells um, so you know that could be a system of this the circulation might might work um, you know, you've got cases where you you, you apply light to a, a remote part or a distant part of the body and you'll get beneficial effects. It's just the same system. Yeah. Um, so whether you've got hair or not, um, I don't think it really matters with, with, with a helmet because those that light source will still reach either the blood, the, the, the circulation, or getting to the cortex. Right. Um, do you think that um, exercise is working um, in a similar way to infrared light in that it boosts mitochondrial function um, in the brain and it's got a host of related, you know, brain-derived neurotrophic factor? And do you think they're doing a similar sort of thing just from a different angle? Yeah, well, that was that was that was my big. Um, I mean, originally I was going to write that book just on photobiomodulation, but I was struck by this, what exercise was doing. Uh, I mean, uh, I mean, you pick up anyone off, off the street and you'll say, is exercise good for you? Oh, yeah, yeah, it gets the muscles going, you know, heart rate, all, you know, peripheral stuff. But, you know, you tell them that, that it actually makes your brain work better. It actually is doing something to improve your brain and um, um, protect it from any kind of stress or pathology. I mean, that that is weird. That is new. And the way in which it was improving brain function is very similar to what what the light was doing. And um, the growth factors, um, you know, I heard Mike Hamblin once 
and and he you know he was unequivocal unequivocally said the the most important molecule in the body is is BDNF. He said without without question, and I don't think he's he's too far wrong that that um you know you've got this molecule that has such a big impact on the survival and function you know maintaining homeostasis in in a in a neuron um and exercise and light stimulate the production of this um and and make your brain healthier and that was the link and um you know my colleague jonathan stone has as a you know would extend this a little bit more and say that you know um um that it's a, a number of other things like diet would include diet in in that um but you do anything to release to to produce more of those growth factors um then you're doing a good thing and exercise doesn't um and light doesn't and if you combine the two then maybe you've got a therapy there that that you could you could tap into yeah yeah um, yeah um have you looked into um any of the effects of vitamin d or and or uv light um on the on the development and progression <laughs> uh well that's a that is that is something I'm, I'm i'm actually looking at right now actually writing a a, a proposal for uh, vitamin D, right, and seeing that um, okay, clinically vitamin D in say looking at Alzheimer's, um, it's it's here or there, just like anything really. I mean, it's, you get some positive findings, others there's no effect. Um, um, animal models, no problem. You know, it's clear that vitamin D deficiency. Um, can lead to disruption, um, more beta amyloid, more dysfunction. Um, whereas vitamin D supplementation will improve that, improve the behaviour, improve the pathology of of an Alzheimer's um, animal model. Um, so um, what we're looking at, or hopefully we'll look at here, is is whether light can actually um, the the efficacy of vitamin D will improve with light application, so that that they they help each other. That that um, that light can be an adjunct, or vitamin D can be an adjunct to the efficacy of light. You know what I mean? They they, mm-hmm. they bounce off each other. Getting back to the idea that diet has an effect on on light with the you know, like we're talking about the chlorophyll metabolites. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, it seems it seems to me like you know, where in nature you'd have infrared light, you'd also have UV light. So, I mean, it makes sense to me that vitamin D or, and its related metabolites are working synergistically with infrared light for for probably a whole lot more than protection of um, of the brain, um, but for you know, all over the body. Um, Indeed. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I could tell you. I, oh, go on. No, no, you, you go, you go. No, no, no. I could, I could tell you um, something that that um, um, I'm also looking to get in, involved in, and I'm particularly um, excited about is is uh, the idea that that, and I, I didn't mention in the book because I sort of became aware of it afterwards um, that. Neurons actually make light themselves. Neurons can um, commun- may communicate using light. Um, neurons may, um, or not just neurons, any cell, uh, actually communicate with light and, and help each other with light to repair and just keep each other informed. Um, and this is the, the biophoton network. Um, and all that we're doing with photobiomodulation is tapping into that, is, is tapping into that. And that's why neurons so deep in the brain are receptive to light because they themselves 
use light to communicate and to repair themselves. That's all we're doing. Um, at different doses, obviously, but but it's still the same mechanism that that you know neuron A will know, will know that neuron B is 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 dysfunctional, um, and therefore may release red or infrared light to help it overcome this dysfunction. And all we're doing it by applying the light is basically doing the job of neuron A. Is, is helping B to, to overcome this dysfunction. Um, so um, there's going to be a series of, of, of experiments going on here, looking at that biophoton activity um, in the brain and hopefully leading, this is probably going to be after I've long, long retired, but, but getting to a point where um, you you can put a device on 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 your head here and and be able to read um, the biophoton or the light activity of neurons and be able to, to define the signatures of light and say, yes, we've got this function here. And we can do that by knowing what type of light we're reading. So a dysfunctional cell may, may give off know, this type of light, maybe red light, or ultraviolet light, okay, that means dysfunction. Um, so yeah, that that is something that um, um, we'll get started um, soon. Soon, I hope, um, and get that ball rolling. Awesome. Well, that was the question I wanted to ask you, anyways. Where where do you see this field going? So um, that's awesome. I, I I'm very interested in the biophoton work. Uh, I'm most familiar with it because of Fritz Pop. Um, but oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it'll be really interesting to see if we can actually tap into that system and and understand where the signalling is is not um, not probably adequate. So uh, I know you've got a meeting very shortly, so um, I might uh, leave oh, it at that. Oh, we can go for a few more minutes if you like. <laughs> yeah. Um, is, I mean, well, is and, there any? And I, I should just say, and leave it. Um, in Sydney is is um, really she's it's the the biophotons um, she she wrote about it uh, some years ago um, um, as part of a, a, a general mode and um, I became interested because of of the potential thought you know they could communicate with each other using this light. Why would they do this? Um, is it a, is it just a byproduct of some sort of metabolic activity? But the systems evolved as such that now they can recognise and talk to each other using light. Um, so, um, and I'd heard of biophotons some from some loonies that uh, refer to, you know, they talk about meditation and the halo and and you know that that to me okay is i'm not so much interested <laughs> in that approach but if you look at it at a cellular level um and the science that's involved uh, again getting back to huxley's it's a beautiful it's a beautiful idea let's just hope an ugly fact doesn't get in the way <laughs> yeah yeah um is there is there anything else that you you think um, like where do you think this field might be going uh, in the next you know few decades but you know before we before we wrap up here? Um, look, I mean, I'm I'm really hoping that that it'll be accepted more um, as something viable because there's good science behind it. Um, you know, a lot of medicos, neuro neurologists in particular, uh, are trained in in their box. And um, as a scientist, you're trained to think out of the box. You know, as a medico, you've got your your rules and your regulations, and and um, you've got you've got a profession that basically steers in one direction. Um, and they're trained very closely with a drug having an effect 
on another cell because of a receptor. Um, and when you look at this, it's the same thing. You've got light, you've got your drug, and you've got your photoacceptors, your receptors. And that's all, the, it's the same system, you know, a stimulant and um, a, a receptor. So I'm hoping that in, in the years to come that um, uh, it'll be more and more accepted as, 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 as a viable treatment, um, as hopefully as, as an adjunct treatment um, um, to the main therapy. Um, and if we look closely, more closely at, at, at the mechanisms behind this, um, hopefully that'll be in line to a, more, a, a far more effective treatment. Because goodness me, I mean, it's been all these years of intense, intense research and nothing's really happened, you know. And it's time for to think out of the box because obviously if you're thinking in the box, it's, it's not happening, mm -hmm. you know. Um, thinking out of the box with something like with light treatment um, uh, could be a means. I'm not saying that light treatment is the way, but there could be something out there that, that um, is – more effective or effective in treating the neurodegenerative diseases. Um, it's just a case of trying to think out of the box, and um, light is, is, I think, one step toward that. Um, but look, I mean, if, if looking to the future, I think the biophoton story is is exciting. I, um, do, do you watch Star Trek? No, I don't. Oh, sorry. Well, there was a, there was a, a medico on there, um, Dr. McCoy, um, and you know, the, which Star Trek's what three or four hundred years, of, of maybe a thousand years ahead of now, and um, there was one movie where they were transported back into time, back into now our time, and uh, he treated a patient, um, and he had this, and he had this little device. And the, the, the patient suffered um, a, a blow on the head, and he put this little device on there, and this little device read out to him um, what was wrong. That he was having a subarachnoid hemorrhage. And um, this, <laughs> I thought to myself, wouldn't that be great if we could do that? Um, and we could do that potentially with light using reading the the light or what what's this is telling us what's happening using different wavelengths of light um and again that's way in the future but let's let's get the ball rolling and i i, I think that being able to you have a device that not only detects the pathology but then treats it um particularly effectively um I think is 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 the future. Um, the intracranial device for something with deep pathology um, and being protective. Um, you have the light applied directly on the cell is the best form of protection. Um, and you having that, I, I think is is wonderful. And the neurosurgeon um, Stefan Chardabra is that, that did the operation. Um, you know, it, it just told me that he said it was much easier than deep brain stimulation because you don't have a you you're putting it into the ventricle right next to the the, the midbrain, so it's a much easier, less less in well not, not it could be less more invasive, um, but it's it's uh, the chances of morbidity is far less with that operation. Um, so yeah, I think the intracranial device by photon story is is I think the way of Way to go. Well, I really hope you're you're right and um I hope more people are cottoning on to the, your way of thinking as well and what a great way to finish up our conversation. Um I can't thank you enough for, for speaking to me. This has been awesome. Anytime, I've been, I've been looking a... forward to this for a long time. <laughs> it was a delight to talk to you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode with John Metrophonus. 
I highly encourage everyone to read his book, Run in the Light. Even if you're not particularly interested in Parkinson's, it's still a great read. Uh, I've got a heap of interesting guests uh, lined up for the next few months, so feel free to keep connected with me on social media using at Richie Flow Nutrition to keep up to date. Take care, everyone, and I'll see you next time.